Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, feed your sheep this morning. Lord, it, it amazes me sometimes that you have given men the responsibility of serving your sheep. That is weighty. It is beyond us without the supply and strength and help of your spirit. So, Holy Spirit, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to man, come in authority and open this divine, inspired, magnificent word for your sheep and for those who may become living sheep through faith in Christ. Come and magnify the infinitely worthy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the uh, early 1960s, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached a series of 21 sermons um, at the at uh, the church there in England um, called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Uh, Lloyd-Jones believed that, I don't know how much you've read about Lloyd-Jones, um, but he, he believed that very strongly that a revived and joyful church is the greatest need of our time. That, that's a weighty say, the, the greatest need, he said, is a revived and joyful church. Listen to what he wrote. Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. And there can be little doubt that the exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the most potent factors in the spread of Christianity. So to be joyless, according to Lloyd-Jones, is to be a bad evangelist. It's to be a bad or a poor representation of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, John Piper echoes this sentiment, and he picks it up by saying this, The one who knows and rests in the sovereign grace of God should be the happiest saint. Don't be a sour or glum or false advertisement for the glory of God's grace. Praise it. And rejoice in it. Amen. But here's the problem. It's one thing to know that. It's another thing to live that. Lloyd-Jones continues. He says, Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give the appearance of unhappiness, a lack of freedom, and absence of joy. Why, why is that? Well, I suppose there's multiple reasons, but I think one major reason that rises to the top is this. We have not adequately understood or applied the gospel to daily life. We're still trying to figure out what it means to live by grace. And, and that's that sounds crazy because the gospel is so foundational. And in many ways, we are very mature. But I think it's true. And apparently, it's what Lloyd-Jones thought as well. Uh, listen to what he says later in Spiritual Depression. He says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? 
The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You must exhort yourself and say to yourself, hope in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed and unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do for you. So there it is. Uh, I think Lloyd-Jones is saying the same thing that I'm saying in a different way, which is preach the gospel to yourself. And if we're not happy as Christians, it may be that we're not gospel Christians. Now, don't misunderstand me. I know that there's lots of reasons why you may feel discouraged or be depressed or unhappy. But I'm making a more general point to us here this morning, and that is this, that there is a direct relationship between your understanding and application of the gospel and your happiness. So if you're in the doldrums, maybe it's because you're grounding your pursuit of holiness in yourself and not in Christ. I mean, perhaps we've forgotten that any pursuit of holiness that's not grounded in and driven by the gospel will eventually run out of gas. But it's only when we begin to understand that our relationship with God is based on Christ's performance for us and not our performance for him that we begin to grow. After all, what is it that puts you in right standing with God? Is it your cleanliness? Is it your obedience? Is it your discipline and spiritual maturity? That's the question before us this morning. Everyone wants to be accepted by God. Everyone is seeking the approval of God. So the question is, how do you get it? That's the urgent question of this text. How do people get right with God? And Paul's answer is unmistakably clear. In fact, his answer is the point of the text. Now, in this passage, 15 to 21, there's a lot of background noise. And um, if we're coming up on baseball season, some of you guys might like baseball. Spring training's in the air. It's about to come. And one of the things I find really interesting about baseball is this, is that when you're in the stadium and there, there's thousands of people there in the stadium, there's lots of noise, there's lots of energy. You've got people walking up and down the stairs selling nachos, dips and chips and, and stuff like that. And you've got, you've got people yelling out. You've got the seventh inning stretch, people singing. There's all kinds of energy in the air. But here's the amazing thing. No matter how much noise and energy that there is, whenever the baseball bat hits the ball, you can hear it. You can hear the crack of the bat. And this text has a lot of background noise. But the crack of the bat is verse 16. That's the point of the passage. Right standing before God does not come from keeping the law, but only through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's what he says, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to trace out the implications of that for us as a church and for you as an individual. And the way I want to do it is I want to walk through the passage and I want to show you four consequences or problems uh, with trying to be justified by works of the law. Four consequences, all leading us to the same conclusion. Listen, that any approach to self-salvation will eventually lead to destruction. So let's go. Number one, seeking to be justified by works of the law is futile. 
is futile. Verses 15 and 16, let's read the text. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also have we believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, that's it. Sermon's done. Let's just all go home. I mean, how could he say it any clearer? No one is justified by works of the law. It's not possible. It's not happening. Even if you tried it, you can give your best go, but you cannot do it. There's no way to do it. It's utterly futile to try. And people go through life trying as hard as they can to do the impossible. And some people work really hard at being really, really good, and they fall short. And they're just hoping that God will accept them. But what Paul is saying here so clearly is that we are made right with God only by faith in Jesus Christ. But he says something that's a bit puzzling in verse 15, doesn't he? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. (laughs) What, What do you think Paul means by this, that we're not Gentile sinners? Is Paul saying we Jews are... We're, we're good Jews, but we're not sinners like Gentiles. Is that what he's saying? Well, obviously he doesn't mean that because, I mean, even the Old Testament teaches over and over again that people are sinners without exception. All people. So he can't mean we Jews are righteous because we're Jews and Gentiles are sinners because they're Gentiles. No. I think what he means is this. Gentiles are not a part of the covenant of Israel. They were not part of the covenant with God. They were outside of the covenant. And in that sense, they were considered to be sinners. But we Jews stand in covenant with God. We're not Gentile sinners. We stand in covenant with God. We are Jews. But verse 16 is the key here. We are Jews, but nevertheless, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see the line of argument there? What Paul's doing is he's saying, we're not, he's saying we're not Gentile sinners, but we're not justified either because we're Jews. Just because we're Jews doesn't do anything for us. We're not justified by the Mosaic Covenant. We're not right with God simply because we're Jews. We also need to be saved. We're not Gentile sinners. We're Jewish sinners. <laughs> We, we need the grace of God in our lives as well. Now, we need to pause here. Now, let me just explain a couple of terms. This is really quick. This is just a couple sentences on this. What works of the law? What does that mean? And then justification. We're pretty well familiar with justification, but just to, be, just to make sure we're on the same page here, works of the law and justification. Um, what does he mean by the phrase works of the law? Well, first of all, notice that Paul does not say that a person is not justified by works. That's not what he says. He says a person is not justified by works of the law. That's a specific term. All right? And and the phrase refers, works of the law, refers not only to the ceremonial aspects of the law, like circumcision, but to the whole law, the entire Mosaic law. Let me, let me, let me just show you, let me just prove this quickly with one verse, Galatians 3.10. Uh, Galatians 3.10, this is Paul. He uses the same term over and over again, and he always means the whole law. Here it is, Galatians 3.10. 
For all who rely on, here's the phrase, works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by what? All things written in the book of the law. So he's drawing a parallel between works of the law and the book of the law. The book of the law is Moses. That's the Torah. That's the the entire law. All right? So that's what he means by works of the law, abiding by everything in works of the law, ceremonial aspects, moral aspects, the whole deal. That's what he means by works of the law. Secondly, what does the word justified mean? Well, the word justified simply means to be declared righteous before God. It's God's statement to you that you are in right standing with him. Um, It's the exact opposite of the word condemnation. To condemn is to declare someone guilty, but to justify is to declare someone righteous. Uh, Listen to what John Stott says. He says, justification is God's act of putting a sinner right with himself. Not only pardoning or acquitting him, but accepting, this is precious, and treating him as righteous. That God actually has a, he has a demeanor towards you of treating you as a righteous person. He not only accepts you, but he treats you. He, he's, he's relationally treating you as righteous. That's, that's a beautiful definition. So when we put these two things together, works of the law, justification, what Paul is saying is that no man, no woman or child can be put in right standing with God on the basis of his or her obedience to God's commands. And Paul's rebuke of Peter here is sharp. You know what he's saying? The context, remember, is Peter refusing to eat with Gentiles. He used to eat with Gentiles, and then he pulled back. So what Peter, what Paul's saying is he's saying, Peter, listen, when you refuse to eat with Gentile sinners, what you're saying is that people are forgiven by God, are saved by God, and are justified because they refuse to eat pork sandwiches. That's ridiculous. And you know that's not true, Peter. You know that it's not true that if you avoid people that don't wash their hands... And if you stay away from people who eat food that we don't eat, that that somehow justifies you, you know that's ridiculous. Look, Peter, you can be kosher on your own time. That's cool. But don't press that on the Gentiles and certainly don't make it a test of fellowship. So that's the first thing we learn here is that trying to be justified by works of the law is utterly futile. Grasping for the wind. It's a sad and wasted life. Because God will never accept our self-salvation strategies. It will only result in death and punishment. So note to self, death to self. Number two, seeking to be justified by works of the law is sinful. Verses 17 and 18. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, these verses are really confusing. And if you're reading that saying, I don't know what that means. Well, guess what? A lot of the commentators are reading that saying, I don't know what it means. (laughs) And that's, that's, that's a bit alarming when you're studying And you have to preach on Sunday, and the commentators are saying, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) 
I mean, literally. And everybody had a different answer, almost. But I prayed, and I prayed, and I fought, and I fought. And I'm, I trust that the Lord has helped me understand the, the essence of this. Listen, let me try to explain it to you by providing a context. The key to understanding this is to notice the word sinners in verse 17. The reason why I think that is because Paul used the same word back in verse 15 to refer to Gentiles. What did he say? He said the, Gentile, the Gentiles were sinners, verse 15. That means to Jews, they were considered to be unclean and immoral because they lived outside of the law. But Peter and Paul, well, they were clean. I mean, they were clean because they kept the law in all of its detail, and herein lies the problem. If Peter and Paul are justified by faith in Christ and not through works of the law, then that means that they can start eating with Gentiles. Which means they don't have to follow the food laws anymore. And if that's the case, then perhaps someone could argue that Jesus has become an agent of sin because he's encouraging people to break the Mosaic law. So that's the objection. People who put their faith in Christ become lawbreakers like Peter who eat pork and hobnob with Gentiles. I, I think that's what he's saying. So, so can we say then that Christ is an agent of sin? Because he's encouraging people to break the law. They're eating pork. And Paul says, no way, not a chance. First of all, it's not a sin to eat pork because I just got through telling you that no flesh will be justified through works of the law. And Peter, God already told you that all food is clean. So you know that. And secondly, even if someone does sin, it's certainly not the Lord's fault. So how dare anybody blame any sin on the Lord? <laughs> I, think that's the, I think that's the flow of the argument. You, if you want to tease that out with me after the service, I'm happy to kind of break that down further for you. But let me apply this to your heart as you sit there in the pew. Um, let's let's press this in. Let's get it. Let's get it home. Um, the fact is, we're all sinners, aren't we? Well, hearing no response, it's a little concerning. <laughs> but we're all we're all sinners. We are all sinners. And here's the deal, though. We just happen to be forgiven sinners. And this is amazing about Christianity. See, when you become a Christian, you're justified, and yet you're still sinful. <clears throat> this is the tension that we find in Romans 4, 5, where Paul says, Now to him who does not work, listen to the words here, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. He doesn't say if you clean up yourself, God will justify you. No, he says to the one who stops trying to work and trust in the one who justifies the ungodly, to him it is counted as righteousness. But did you catch the language? To him, listen, to him who justifies the ungodly. That's a juxtaposition of two words that ought to make you feel weird. Justification of the ungodly. Declaring the ungodly righteous. How, how, what, that is... That, that's the heart here of the Christian message, justified sinners. This means that in the presence of God, we are justified, but in ourselves, we are still sinners. In God's presence, we are justified, but in ourselves, we are sinners. 
So in one sense, we can say that we're both justified and sinful at the same time. Now, every religion in the world messes this up, except Christianity. Only in Christianity is the death of Jesus actually needed. Follow, follow, follow my thought here. If you're a legalist or a moralist, you can just earn your own way into heaven, according to that, that theory. You don't need Jesus, just your own hard work and grit. But if you're a theological liberal over here, then you don't need Jesus either because you're already loved and accepted by God along with everyone else in the world. So it is said. Every other religion, every other philosophy, every other worldview would would say either you're a sinner and trying to earn your way into God's favor or there's no such thing as sin and it doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about it. So the legalist says, I'm a sinner, yes, but I'll work hard and God will accept me for my effort. And the theological liberal says, why bother? Just be a free spirit. There's no such thing as sin. And even if there was, God would accept you anyway. But only through the gospel do you actually have sin being paid for so that you can be a sinner and still forgiven. So that God can be a forgiver and yet still righteous. And that means only through the gospel is it possible for us to be righteous sinners or honored failures. Praise God. Martin Luther captures the essence of this um, theology in his Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously just and a sinner. A Christian is both righteous and sinful at the same time. Only in Christianity is this taught. And this is absolutely profound. And it's so important for you to understand this because this affects you, how you live tomorrow. And I'm I'm getting into that. If you're justified, it's not because you're trying really hard to be holy and that somehow impresses God. You know, how many quiet times did you have and how good is your prayer life and, and, and how close are you walking with God these days? No, your justification is not based on that at all. Your fellowship might be hindered. But your justification is not based on how many quiet times you have. And your right standing with God is not based on your personal holiness, and that's a good thing. (laughs) Your justification is based on Christ and Christ alone. You are counted righteous in Christ. You are considered righteous. Do you know what it means to be considered righteous? It means that God's view of you has changed. God's view of you has changed. God's view of you has changed. Not because you did something holy last week. Not because you did something extra spiritual, but because his son did something extra spiritual and holy, namely living a perfect life and dying on the cross for you. So his view of you has changed. So don't cheapen the cross by making the basis of your justification your measly little performance. Listen, we belittle Jesus when we base our right standing with God on our quiet times. 
We belittle Jesus. And this is the reason why so many of us struggle being performance-oriented Christians. We don't really get it that Jesus has already done it. We say it, but we don't get it. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work its way into daily life. So that's why the Gospels for Christians, we need to mull over this. We need to soak in this until it gets a hold of you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, in this, grace is radical. It is radical. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if in your preaching of the gospel, you never are criticized or accused of being antinomian, then you're not preaching the gospel. You know why? Because it makes you uncomfortable. Like, grace can't be that radical. I've got to perform. I've got to do stuff. I've got I to show that I'm somebody. I've got I to gotta work for God. And the Bible says, Jesus worked for you. It's just, it's so radical, and we just squirm. We squirm because we say, man, this is just going to fling us off into all kinds of sin and, and reckless living. Well, let's trust God. Let's trust that if the Bible tells us that that's supposed to be our impetus and our motivation for godliness, let's trust it. Let's trust him. So Christ has done it. The gospel provides a third way, and it's on our knees, accepting what Christ has done for us. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Well, I guess that kind of clears up verse 18 then, doesn't it? Verse 18, Paul is saying, Paul saying, it's not a sin. It's not a sin to, to not follow food laws that are no longer binding. You, you want to know what sin is? I'll tell you what sin is. Sin is rebuilding the Mosaic law that Christ tore down with his life, death, and resurrection. Sin is trying to rebuild a system of works righteousness. Sin is trying to be justified again through works of the law. That's what sin is. So, Peter, if you go back now and you seek to be justified before God by, a tr- by trying to obey the Mosaic law, then you are proving to everyone that you are a profound sinner. Sin isn't breaking a law that's no longer bonding. Sin is reinstituting a law that's dead. Sin is saying that Christ's sacrifice is not enough. Sin is saying and living like you need a Jesus plus gospel. That's sin. So the second thing we learn from Paul is, is, listen, trying to be justified by works of the law is not only futile, it's sinful. So note to self, death to self. Third, seeking to be justified by works of the law is self-centered, 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law. Here's the purpose, so that... Why Why did you die to the law? So that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. Here it is. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says he died to the law. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, notice Paul didn't say that the law died. Paul said he died with respect to the law. Now, don't miss the weight of this statement here. Paul's a former Pharisee. This is a guy who was getting it all in. 
This is a guy who found his life's purpose following the law. That, that was his life's ambition. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So when he says he died in the law, that's kind of a big statement because that was his deal. He lived for the law, and now he says he's dead. He's dead to it because once Christ came, the law was useless as a means of salvation or of getting right with God. So to die to the law means you're dead to it as a means of salvation, and it means you're dead to its condemnation. If we are justified not by the law but by Christ, then that means the law can no longer condemn us. So we renounce it as a means of salvation. We renounce the law as a means of salvation and are freed from its dominion and condemnation. And this has massive implications for us. First, Christians, we are not living under dominion or condemnation to the law. If you're feeling condemned, if you're fearing that God will no longer hear your prayers, if you're fearing that God will no longer care for you, if you're fearing that 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 God is, is, is somehow in a position of anger or enmity against you, then you have forgotten that you are dead to the law. The law cannot condemn you. Its power has been broken. It's one thing to feel appropriate guilt, and you should. It's another thing to feel condemnation. That's wrong. Because in Christ, there is no condemnation. So let's be clear about guilt versus condemnation. Number two, as Christians, we have died through the law. Perhaps you can go back and listen to Pastor Sam's uh, series in Romans and listen to his unpacking of Romans 7. But this is really Paul's point in Romans 7 when he says, look, the, the, the law did me in. I was done in by the law. Through the law, I died. That means it killed me. It showed me I was a sinner. It condemned me. It showed me I could never keep all the requirements. It killed Paul. And, and Paul was trying to obey it. He was working hard. He came, but when he was doing that, he came to see that it's impossible to obey all these regulations. And, and so what did it do? It prepared him for Christ. It showed him, I can't do this. He saw that he needed a Savior, and that was the purpose of the law, was to point him to Jesus. Number three. As Christians, we have died to the curse of the law. See, remember that with the law comes a deadly curse. We just read it. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in this book of the law to do it. So it comes a curse. And anyone who fails to keep everything in it is condemned to die. So what happens is the law carries out its death penalty. The law carries a death penalty, and Christ takes the penalty. Christ takes the curse for us. In essence, what happens is the law enacts its penalty against Jesus, and as Phil Riken says, listen, a man can only be executed once, and once he's been executed, the law has no further claim on him. So how do I know that the law is dead to you? Because Jesus took the curse of it. So if you live like the law is still alive to you in terms of its cursing, then you're belittling the cross because Jesus ended it. That's the point. That means that if you're a Christian, the penalty of the law has been carried out. It's finished. When Christ died, the demand of death was satisfied. The power and the curse of the law was snapped for you by Jesus, and you are free in Christ. It's the gospel so freeing. So, friend, if you're here as a non-Christian, let, let me tell you that the only way that you get what Christ is offering is to be united to him by faith. 
we don't sit here this morning as justified Christians. It's crystal clear from what I'm saying already because we've worked hard. It's by faith. All these people here are just people who've believed in Jesus. That's it. And John Calvin sums it up so well. He says, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race is useless and of no value to us as long as we remain separated from him and outside of Jesus. So you got to get Jesus by faith. And when you get him by faith, then you get all these benefits. So turn to, to, turn to Christ today. Now, what's the point of verses 19 and 20? I think the point is this. I mean, if I had to pull it all together, tie it up, here's the point. Paul is saying that he never really lived for God when he was trying to save himself through the law. See, when he's trying to save himself through obedience to the law, he's not living for God. In fact, he's self-centered. That's the height of being self-centered is self-salvation. Your self-salvation strategy is the height of your self-centeredness. That's what Paul's saying. This is what happens to people who obey God outside of faith in Christ. They obey God to get something from God. God's useful. He's a utility. He helps me. He gives me a reward. People who, who obey God outside of faith in Christ use God. They try to. God won't be used, just to be clear. Self-righteous, moralistic, legalistic people obey God to get something from him, but Christians obey him out of a different impulse. Christians obey God out of just sheer love for him. That means if we're in Christ, we have a new motive for obedience, and it's far more powerful and pure. We simply live for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. He's our motivation. His son, his salvation, his everlasting love is our motivation. It's not about me because it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What does that mean for us? Well, that means I can take off the mask. Last week, I can take off the mask because... It's for freedom that Christ has set me free. Jesus loves you, my sister, behind the mask. Jesus loves you, my brother, behind the pretense. You know why? Because you're already considered righteous in Christ. The words of verse 20 are so meaningful. And the life I now live in the flesh, that's right now, right now, guys. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, by faith, not by works, by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is very personal. You know what it means for you? It means that all your security... And all your significance and all your meaning in life comes not from this world, but from Christ who loves you and gave himself for you. Young young man, young woman here, the world wants you. 
Its grip is tight. Its deception is powerful. Its result is ruin. The world wants all of us. But brothers and sisters in Christ, listen to me. What the world offers you cannot compare to the love of Christ for you. Christ gave you himself, and that is the height of love. And you need to soak there and soak there and soak there until you can pull yourself out of the world. To the degree that you are plastered by the world or tempted by the world or drawn in by the world is the same degree that you don't understand the dynamic of Christ's love for you. That's the impetus, that's the motivation to avoiding falling into sin, is realizing that the pleasures of God, the pleasures of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, are great enough, are strong enough, are are big enough to keep you from the pleasures of this world. He is enough. Jesus is enough for you. So listen to me, my brother. God is not opposed to your pleasure. He is for it. And so that desire you have for that female form to see her, to enjoy her, will never quench your thirst outside of God, which is in marriage. It will not. Listen listen to me. It will never quench your thirst. But the joy that he has for you is better than anything this world can offer. So listen to me, brother who's struggling with pornography. Listen to me, husband who's flirting with a girl at work who for seven or eight years... Your wife has not been feeding you, has not been giving you good attention, has not been loving you like you feel like. Probably in response to your sin, listen to me. Listen to me. Pleasing God is not at odds with your happiness. This is a faith issue. Your sexual addiction is a faith issue. You don't believe the promises of God. And to my sisters, listen to me. Let me love on you for a second. You've been told that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But your perception of beauty changes greatly depending on what or who that beholder might be. What makes you beautiful? What defines beauty? Who defines beauty? What makes you valuable? Let me serve you, my sister, just for a moment by giving you some fresh perspective. Um, this week, the Lord, I think, led me to um, a, uh, a, a beautiful, powerful, helpful ministry uh, dedicated to women um, for your sake to share this with you. It's called The Beheld, and it's an online ministry um, for women dedicated to reshaping and reforming um, women's perspective on beauty. <clears throat> And there's a video that's been created. It's very powerful. And it's a girl who's essentially in her mid-20s. And she is, uh, she's walking around in this video. At the beginning, she's, she's pulling off petals on a flower and throwing them to the ground like a little girl would do in her innocence. And then as the video goes, you see the progression of how the world starts to really get a hold of her more and more. And the clutches and the grip of the world start to really kind of pull her in. And it's a poem that's been written, and I transcribed it, and I want you to hear it. Little girl, little girl, precious little girl, unencumbered, wide-eyed, sweet, unique. The world is waiting. It's yours for the keep. But don't think too deep. Just step out onto this platform of what they call a stage 
play this role, wear this mask, do what feels right. No need to ask. Hours fly. Time goes by. Lie after lie after lie. Must look taller. Eyelashes longer. Hair lighter. Skin tighter. Does this make me look fatter? All this clutter. You can't attain the standard of perfection. It's hopeless emptiness. Yes, I can and I must because that's what they define me by. Farewell, childhood bliss. This paint on my eyes, these different colored dyes. All mere expressions, not definitions. So tell me, why do I believe that if I alter or make up my face, then I'm worth it? When in all reality, in light of eternity, all of this is worthless. This wasn't my intention to live life as a slave, a slave to modifying a physical nature, born depraved. Is this my life's purpose, the overarching plan, to be dragged on a leash by the praises of man? What has possessed me, participating in this mind game of falsehood, glaring, comparing, daring to pick apart my fellow sisters in this journey? It's uncanny to think, to believe my perceptions derive from deceptions, interpret and deliver true meaning. When does this stop? How does this stop? See, we weren't made for a self-satisfying life of digression. We were made, intentionally created for an obsession about the one who gave us a possession, a glorious inheritance with no requirement for penance, only soul surrendered obedience. For he calls us out of insanity, this whirlwind of catastrophic vanity, inviting us to the freedom of brokenness in all abounding forgiveness. Oh, would you heal our hearts, precious maker of all. Strip off these false layers, piece by piece, let them fall. Let us cling to the image of the one who gives life, beholding true beauty, bringing victory over strife. Praise God. That's the Christ who frees us. Whether you're a a girl or a man in here, you need that freedom from the world. We have been freed from needing the praises of other men, which is really nothing more than a craving for self. When you seek the praises of man, you're just seeking yourself. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. So note to self, death to self. Friends, this is the inner dynamic of a healthy Christian life. Only when you see yourself as completely loved and holy in Christ Will you have the power to repent with joy, conquer your greatest fears, and obey the one who did it all for you? Well, finally, trying to be justified by works of the law is blasphemous. It's blasphemous. All strengthening the argument. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. I do not. For if righteousness were through the law... 
then Christ died for no purpose. <laughs> wow. This is easily Paul's strongest argument. He is saying, if works of the law could justify, then what's the point of Jesus? If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could get saved by circumcision and avoiding pork and people who eat it, then why in the world would God become a man in Christ, get beaten, mocked, and crucified? If rituals work, then why this suffering life and bloody death of Jesus? It's absurd and it's gross and it's perverted. That theology is perverted. It's, 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 if you try to be saved through your good works and moral attainments, then you nullify the grace of God and you say that the blood of Jesus was wasted. And that's blasphemous. And that's the point of verse 21. It means that Christ will do everything for you or he'll do nothing for you and you will be damned by Jesus. You work for, you work for God. You try to work your way into heaven and Jesus will damn you because you didn't accept his blood. That's the severity of this. But just gently, sweetly, lovingly accept Jesus. But why the resistance, the prideful resistance of man I'm going to work my way into heaven. I'm going to get there. I'm going to do that. And Jesus is saying, I died for you. I mean, how stupid. It's unbelievable. This is the point. You cannot mix your works with his grace. And if you try it, you're dead. It's deadly. You blasphemed his name. Don't trust yourself. So note to self, death to self. Well, we've seen four reasons why trying to be justified through works of the law is deadly. It's futile. It's sinful. It's self-centered. And it's blasphemous. So the fundamental issue is this. What are people really trusting in? And also, what about this for us? How is it that a professing Christian, I think Peter was a professing Christian. In fact, I think he was a Christian. That's pretty clear. How is it then that as professing Christians, we could possibly get to the point where we think that by our own hard work and sweat that we get justified? How can we get there? Peter got there. Peter got there. So how how do we slip into that? That we know how perverted that thinking is. So how do we slip into that? And I think the answer from Galatians that we've seen so far and we've learned in this series is that it happens by losing sight of the cross. I've heard people say there's just too much emphasis on the gospel. We'll stop preaching the gospel. All right? And you might go to hell over it because slowly and surely you'll start getting a works righteousness. Listen, the gospel is safe for you. If you don't have the gospel, you're not safe. We have a propensity, a proclivity, a drawing, a tendency. Uh, we have a bent towards going to works righteousness. That's what we do. 
So the gospel is, we, we can never have enough gospel because the gospel constantly says, get back, get back, get back from the precipice of your works-based salvation. Get back from that. You're getting too close to the edge. Jesus, oh yeah, Jesus died. Got to come back. We, we have a tendency to, 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 to get away from Jesus. So as we go on in the Christian life, what's ha- what happens is it's easy to leave Jesus in the rearview mirror. And instead, Jesus gets behind us, and instead, Jesus is supposed to be out in front of the windshield where we can see him. He's at the forefront of our minds and our hearts. If Christ isn't in front of you, then he's behind you. And if he's behind you, then slowly but surely, you'll drift away from him. And like Peter, you'll seek to be justified through self. And we've seen the consequences of that. Friends, here's the irony. Both the lawbreaker and the lawkeeper are in it for themselves. Both the lawbreaker and the lawkeeper are living for themselves. You need to be saved, not from just your sin. You need to be saved from your righteousness. Because your righteousness is a perversion. That's the point. A Christian is a third type of person. Christianity is a third way. Between the the theological liberal and the legalist. Christianity is a third way. And a Christian is someone who's died to himself. A Christian is one who seeks to be justified, not on his own righteousness, but by the righteousness of another. So what's your hope resting on? Can you say with Edward Mote, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? I hope so. But if you can't, note to self, death to self. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your help. Lord, we pray for the the lingering hours of this day and week that you will take this word and just work it in, work it in to where it's deep and it's life transforming for the sake of this church, for your love for Heritage Baptist Church, for your love for us as members of this church. So we make it to heaven, trusting in the robe of Jesus. We thank you for your word. It's been helpful and illuminating for us, and we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.